Well, it's so good for me to be back here again sharing uh, and exploring the Word of God with you all. Thank you for giving me that space to just rest and recover a little bit. Uh, but this morning, we're, gonna, we're jumping right into things. We're going to start an eight-week series looking at the book of Philippians. And this is a pretty short book. It's only four chapters long, but it is packed with passionate appeals from Paul, right, its author. And in it, even in these passionate appeals, there are some very strong theological statements that we're going to be investigating and packing in the coming weeks. Like all of the writings of Paul in the New Testament, the book of Philippians is a letter. It's written to a particular community of Christians at a particular time. So the church that Paul is writing to is in the city of Philippi. It was uh, in the modern-day Greece. Um, in fact, I think Philippi still exists in modern-day Greece. It was one of the first churches that Paul planted in Europe. If you are interested in a little bit more of the backstory, the narrative portion of that, Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 40, describe his time in this region, beginning with the conversion of Lydia and tracking the miraculous provision of God. Paul and Silas had been arrested, and God sends an angel to break the doors open, and the Philippian jailer is converted. Uh, it, it's, there's some really crazy stuff that God did through Paul um, in, when he was there. And so in the, it's no wonder that the Philippians, being this you know, very early church that Paul planted, that it had a very special place in his heart. And so while Paul writes to the Philippians, he's not trying to write a theological treatise. Right? He's not writing a reference manual for how believers ought to live. Too often that's how we treat the Bible, as a manual. It's not a manual for life. Instead, he's writing a very deeply personal letter. I mean, it just so happens to be packed with consistent theology. So what we're going to see is his deep compassion, his heart for these fellow Christians and the delight that he has for them. In fact, if I had to summarize the book in one word, it would be the word joy, or some variation appear of it appears 14 times uh, in this letter. So if you would follow along with me and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, let's look at what he has to say about this beloved church. As we go through the series, the theme, here's the theme that I want you to remember. It's what's on our marquee out, uh, outside at the corner of the block. It's the joy of service to God and to one another. From the opening paragraph, we're going to see Paul's trajectory of this theme. So hopefully you've had a chance to find the passage, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God, as my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So I want to go back and address this passage in three sections, right, verses 1 and 2, 3 through 8, and then 9 through 11. And so if you look back at those first two verses, Paul's introduction, the first line, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, if you're reading the ESV in there, there's a little footnote under the word servant. It doesn't tell you too much. It's usually like, go back to our introduction and read, you know, the comment on this word, doulos, Right, that's the, the Greek word doulos that it's translating. And, you know, servant is how this is rendered in, uh, in, in the Greek word here uh, and in most other translations as servant. But in fact, what would be a more literal translation of that word is actually the word slaves. These are not just hired hands, Paul and Timothy, but this word describes a person without any ownership rights of their own. Now, when I was prepping, I was, I was a little hesitant to go into detail on this word because I don't know about you, but it's a, it's a word I'm a little uncomfortable with. Our, our nation has a pretty ugly and sordid history with slavery and the continued systemic racism that permeates to this day, but this is what the Bible communicates. Right? Paul and Timothy here are describing themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. They are not living for themselves, but in complete and total submission to Christ, right? God has the total claim on their lives. Now, what I think is even more striking than the label that he uses for himself is the label that's actually absent. In almost every other letter that Paul wrote, he uses a different title. Most letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament begin with, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. A couple of them add this title of servant, doulos, but it's usually alongside this title, apostle. But it's absent in his writing to the Philippians. Apostle was a word that was packed with authority. After Jesus' death, you had the 11 remaining disciples, and they were labeled as apostles, they were the ones who led that early movement of Christianity. Paul elsewhere describes himself as an apostle abnormally born. But in doing so, even though he wasn't one of the original disciples, by claiming this title apostle in other places, he's advocating that he has that same level of authority as those first disciples of Jesus. I mean, think about it a little bit. I, I try to make a comparison of like a CEO in the business world. Uh, several years ago, there was that show some of you may have watched called Undercover Boss. Right? The CEO of a company would, would act like a low-level worker to observe the behaviors of his or her staff. I think one of the best versions of this is actually the, uh, the SNL skit with uh, Adam Driver as you know, Kylo Ren, but pretending to just be a low-level maintenance worker on the, on the uh, uh, not the Death Star, whatever it was there. Um, I, that one's pretty funny. You should watch that one. But there's this big reveal then at the end of the show where the roles were flipped, that that manager who had been observed 
would see their CEO with the rightful authority. And usually, you know, it was either like a, hey, well done, good and faithful servant, or, hey, you treat our employees like crap. So in his opening of the letter, what Paul is not doing is he's not name-dropping. He's not using his title, he's not using his privilege as a reason that the church should listen to what he had to say, right? He's not unveiling his authority like the CEOs in Undercover Boss, right? Remember that theme that I said, that, the, that the, 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 this book is about the joy of service to God and to one another, right? In order to be a servant of God or to each other, we need to have humility. That needs to be front and center in our lives, and we're going to look at that in two weeks, There's a whole section on humility. But by omitting this influential title, Paul is leading by example, right? He's not claiming any special privilege. He's not, you know, claiming, you got to listen to me because I'm an apostle. I'm a leader of Jesus' church. Now, if you go to verse 2, you could see, or actually, we're not out of verse 1 yet. The second half of verse 1, this continues. See, he addresses who the letter is meant for. All the saints in the city with the elders, kind of what overseers means, and deacons. The elders and the deacons would have been the church officers, right? The leaders of that particular church. But this letter is not just for them. It's for all the saints of the city. I'm fearful that yet again our modern understanding might miss the significance of this. Because in our day, if we use the title saint, it's usually reserved for the ultra-pious, people who are given sainthood, perhaps, by the Catholic Church. People like, you know, I think the first person that usually comes to mind is Mother Teresa, someone who lives in a way that many of us would probably struggle to live. If that is the type of person that comes to mind, we might start tuning out. This letter's not for me. I don't measure up. Sure, this is for the leaders and all those, like, ultra-religious people. But in the early church, saint was an inclusive word. We kind of use it as an exclusive way, only, you know, we have to meet a certain threshold, but it was used biblically as an inclusive word to represent anyone who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's synonymous with the ways that we might use the words believer or, or Christian today. So here again, we have Paul breaking down social structures and titles. He's paying respect to, he's acknowledging the leaders of the church but he highlights the relevance of the content of this letter is for everyone. This isn't a, you know, for your eyes only sort of salutation. He's writing to every single believer in the city. And I think there's a great intersection for us in what this means for how we think about our spiritual lives. Because according to the Bible, you are a saint. You might not feel like a saint. Your life is probably not perfect. It might be still a mess. But if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been set apart by God, for God, and that makes you a saint. Real quick, before we move on, let's address verse 2, right? We're several minutes into this passage, gotten through one verse. I will pick up the pace, I promise. But verse 2 begins, and this is, this is one of these like a little nerding out things, um, so if you want to tune out for the next 30 seconds, that's fine. Uh, verse 2 begins as a blessing. It says grace and peace to you, uh, but this is really intriguing because of what Paul is doing here. Right? He's modifying the form of letter that was written in the Roman Empire, in the ancient world. So if you wanted to write a letter, let's say you open up Microsoft Word and you say, I want to write a business letter or a personal letter, and, and it'll, it'll, you know, 
uh, um, populate certain boxes that then you customize. The address goes here, the greeting goes here. But, you know, they're all part of a normal mode of what you expect in a letter. And so Paul so far has been following the template of letter writing in the ancient world, right? Who's authoring the letter, who it's written to. But next, what would come next in a letter at this time was a generic salutation. The Greek word carrion. Hear that? Carrion. And we would just translate it as greetings. But instead, Paul modifies it slightly, and he uses, instead of carrion, he uses the word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. So what Paul's doing here is he's using fam- a fam- familiar, typical greeting in the Roman world and infusing it with the lingo of Jesus for his audience. Right? Instead of a very generic, you know, hey, how you doing? It's like, may the Lord richly bless you. I think that's pretty neat. All right, let's move on to the next section, verses 3 through 8. So in these next verses, Paul is pouring out his heart. In fact, I titled the sermon, Paul's Love Letter to the Philippians. He has this affection for the Philippians. He's grateful for them. He prays for them. He encourages them in the continued work of God in their midst. And so let's break it down a bit. Verse 5 gives an explanation. Paul is grateful for their participation in the gospel. But what does that mean? The word that's translated as partnership in the Greek word is is the Greek word koinonia. You may have heard that. Sometimes churches like to, you know, want to be hip and use Greek words, and so they'll be like, we're koinonia fellowship. Um, It's a word in other places that we usually see translated as community or, or fellowship. But, but here what we're seeing is fellowship is not just like a community, a gathering of people that's formed out of a shared belief system or formed out of sentimentality. But instead it is a costly community. A community that the Philippians have given of themselves to cultivate. The Philippians are partnering with Paul financially as he's a herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're kind of like sponsoring him, if you will. They are with Paul through thick and thin, even while he is in chains, as verse 7 says. I'll look at that in a minute. Right? They've supported him while he's traveling and sharing the gospel to the nations, but even now they continue to support him when he's under house arrest in Rome. In the ancient world, the fact that Paul was imprisoned by the Roman Empire could have been seen as a source of social shame. It would have been a stigma. I mean, think about it this way. Chances are, if you have had any interaction with kids over the last few years, you have had to go through the process of getting your clearances. You know, you need a police background check, you need a Pennsylvania child abuse clearance, and you've got to get fingerprinted, you know, double vetted by the FBI. If you have a record, every time you get those documents, and whoever you give them to, your employer, right, the agency that you want to volunteer for, they see your dirty laundry. Now, your identity is not based upon what your record shows. I think that needs to be stated. But there are, t- there are elements where there can be social shame in that, in having that record that can accompany it. So when Paul is arrested, instead of distancing themselves from him, the Philippians continue to pursue and care for his needs. They have been true friends of the faith over the years. 
Now, in our age of individuality, I think we've lost what it means to live this way. Deep friendships are hard to, are difficult to cultivate, and they're even harder to keep. Our schedules are so busy that we can't find time for one another, and we're emotionally underdeveloped that when conflict inevitably comes, we don't know how to handle it. We turn tail and we run. I know there's a challenge here that I personally find very convicting because those friendships don't just happen, they're formed, right? They're forged and welded together in the midst of trials and circumstances. I mean, let me be honest for a second and give you an inventory of my life. I have next to no contact with my, you know, best friends in high school. My college roommate and I lived together for three and a half years, but we correspond barely once a year, if even that. Outside of my brother, I've only really been able to maintain a relationship with one other groomsman in my wedding. I had six groomsmen, and I'm in my brother and then marginal contact with one other, and it's peripherally at best. And so I, I acknowledge, like, this is an indictment on me more than anything else, And I know there are those here in this room that you've really been able to maintain those relationships. You've preserved those friendships. But I think some of you can probably sympathize with my experience. We all want deep friendships. We want people who are going to stick with us through thick and thin in all circumstances, as Paul highlights. But I want you to ask yourself, are you that type of friend to others? Are you willing to be there in a sacrificial capacity for others, or do you just want the camaraderie for yourself? We can learn from this relationship between Paul and the Philippians to see a model of what true and good friendship ought to look like. Are you thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ? The same way that Paul expresses how thankful he was for the Philippians. You know, he, he describes his emotions as yearning for them, and that's, that's some weighty language. Now, before we move on, I want to just go back to Paul's imprisonment. Remember I said that, you know, a primary theme of this book is joy. Paul exudes joyfulness while he's currently chained to a guard back in Rome without his freedom. To me, this seems like contradictory elements, that he has joy while he's got, you know, while he's in the midst of of being in prison. Paul's in the slammer, but he's joyful. This tension of seemingly incompatible things is often foreign to me. I mean, if I get slighted in the least, I mean, let's just say it's like someone cuts me off on the road, what I think you could call a minor inconvenience. Like, I get all grumpy. I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're fine, you can blow it off, but like I get grumpy, and that's got like dividends to my day that like, I, it like ruins your day. I'm liable to come home and snap, get all snippy with Sarah, the kids. Paul's circumstances are far more significant than my own, yet he's able to maintain this attitude of gratitude. He's got joy. I know I've said it before, but we must remember that joy is not the same thing as happiness. It would be crazy for Paul to have this false sense of happiness in the midst of dire circumstances. In recent years, you know, we've started to put a label on that. We've, you know, we call it uh, toxic happiness or toxic positivity. 
Okay, Paul isn't that. He is open and honest with his circumstances, but his joy is not dependent upon finding comfortable circumstances. He finds joy in the way the gospel is moving, both through his experiences but also through the lives of the Philippians. In the midst of a difficult environment, the gospel is moving, and that gives him hope. So I I would put forth to you this morning that joy is not ignoring your surroundings. You can be honest with your surroundings, but it's seeing the ways in which God is working for the good in spite of them. Paul follows a God who is faithful. That's what he says in verse 6, right? The one who started that work in you, Philippians, yeah, he is going to finish it, and you can take that to the bank. Spiritual progress is not a static reality. It's rooted in what God has done, is doing, and is going to do. Paul is joyful because the gospel is advancing. God is moving in the lives of these people that he cares so much about. All right, let's finish this section. Let's go to verses 9 through 11. It's Paul putting to words the prayers that he offers to God on behalf of the people. I have to say, I really appreciate this section. It's common in areas like this for us to share what's going on in our lives. You know, at every small group at the end, we do a, a highs and lows, sharing what's going on. And, and I think as Christians, our response is often, I'll pray for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We should be praying for the circumstances and the ordeals that others are facing. But notice, that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul's not praying for those things here. He doesn't have a list of particular needs that he's praying for, but he is praying for their continued formation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think about that. In your lives, how often do you pray for the needs of others? That's a good thing to do. But now think about how often do you pray for the formation of their souls, their walk with Jesus, Paul's love for the Philippians is displayed in this prayer for them, not just to overcome circumstances, but what are the virtues, what elements of character that Paul wants to see in them. And by my count, there are actually four elements to his prayer. First, he prays that their love would abound. Right, That primary characteristic of God, 1 John, that God is love that that would be made manifest more and more in their lives, that as they increase knowledge, as they go about their days, that they would operate out of an environment where they're rooted. They know God's love for them, and they're enabled as a result of that to love others more fully. Second, he prays for their discernment, that they would be able to take all this input that they receive on a daily basis and filter it through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know and to choose the good. I mean, gosh, this has so many applications for us today. Who doesn't need a little extra dose of Holy Spirit-infused wisdom as we, you know, live in such a complex time socially and politically? I mean, over the next several months, we're going to be seeing political ads telling us which candidate that we ought to support, and more often than not, why support of the opposing candidate would lead to catastrophe in our nation, right? We're, We're inundated with messages about race and gender, As we think about these things, how do we know what is good? How do we know what is excellent? 
I know I need God's help with that. And so I hope it's a community that we can, you know, not, not just reject everything outright. I, I, I think that has been part of the problem with the evangelical church in America is anything that sniffs of something outside of their realm of experience, they've dismissed. Oh, that's woke ideology. There are important, necessary things we need to be processing through some of those ideologies. But there's also stuff that's not so good in the midst of it. So may the Lord give us wisdom on how to navigate these complex minefields of our day that we can be a salt and light to the nations. Thirty prays for their holiness, that they would live lives that are pure and blameless. He's already called them saints. It's kind of what saints means, to be set apart, to be holy for the sake of the gospel. And Paul prays that they would live into that, lean into that more and more, that their lives would be a reflection of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And lastly, that they bear fruit. He prays that they would be equipped to undertake such a task. Not like, you know, I pray for, you know, Sally that she can have strength, you know, I don't know, I, I should have, I didn't prep something like this, but you know, there, there are circumstances we should be praying for, but what the, the strength that Paul is praying for, the, the equipping, is not necessarily just to overcome whatever hurdle they're facing, but that they would live those lives of, of truth and honor and goodness through God. Paul knows that the fruit of righteousness is not something that they can muster on their own. It's through Christ that they are empowered to this high calling. I was on Instagram this week and saw a reel from Jackie Hill Perry that I thought resonated with this point. And she said this, quote, God ain't calling nobody to do nothing that they can do apart from his help. Uh, There's a lot of negatives in that. Let me say it again. God ain't calling nobody to do nothing that they can do apart from his help. And what she means by this is that God often does not call you to something that you could just do on your own by your own power. And so we need prayers of the people like Paul, reminding us that the fruitfulness comes not of our own might or strength, but of God's work in us. Jackie Hill Perry continues, she says, quote, your competence isn't what makes you useful. Your dependence does. It is through your dependence that God blesses your competence. So as we reflect on these passages, let me try to break some of this down. Let me try to give us some practical take-homes. So this introduction to this letter by Paul is loaded with meaning, and it contains themes that we're going to continue to unpack in the upcoming weeks. But for this week, what I want us to focus on, I want us to think about and dwell on, is this concept of community that's implicit in this text. There is such warmth, there is such yearning from Paul to be with this people, even though he's hundreds, I think it's like 800 miles away from them in prison. We've seen that these relationships do not occur overnight. Paul wasn't a a traveling salesman, you know, hawking his wares. He would have stuck around Philippians for a week and then, you know, off to the next destination. But Paul stayed. He interacted. He helped develop that new church. That relationship continued because they gave of their resources to care for him as well, to equip him when he did leave to continue his mission to share Jesus Christ through the Roman Empire. 
So here's the first of the questions to reflect on. I want you to think of a few brothers and or sisters in the faith that you are thankful for. I'm sure there are people that come to mind. Have you let them know that you're thankful for them? Paul's writing to let them know how thankful of them he is. When I was in the midst of my support raising training many years ago, um, they said something that stuck with me, and they said, gratitude inexpressed is ingratitude. You might have gratitude, but if you don't express it, what good is it? It's ingratitude. And so I'd encourage you, explore, and I'll post these things on Facebook and the website like I do each and every week. Explore some of those names. Think through those names and let those people know how much they mean to you, as we saw Paul did with the Philippians. Second is this. How are you being a community cultivator and not just a community parasite? It's a little bit strong language, but I was trying to be a little, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but... We want people to be there for us through thick and thin. Are you also being dependable? Are you with others through thick and thin? A faithful friend and not just expecting it for yourself. And then lastly, as you inventory your prayer life, are you praying for the blessing and formation of others? Or are you just praying for their circumstances? I have a, a prayer journal that I keep at home. I, I woefully underutilize. I'm really bad about journaling. But when you open that, on the very front page, before I have any prayer requests written down, I have a few translations written of Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And I, I want to read it for you real quickly. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. It's kind of a similar type of prayer from Paul. It says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I have that on the front page of my journal to help shape how I pray for people. Yes, I want to pray for the current issues at hand, but I also need that constant reminder that a deeper layer of prayer for others, that I need to pray for their formation in Jesus Christ. So yes, I pray that they would do well on their upcoming exam or that they would, you know, would yell at their kids less but also that they would more fully know God whom they serve, that they would be more rooted in his love. Do you see how that is formational for them? That the fruit of the Spirit would be manifest more fully in their lives, that that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they would grow in love and obedience towards him. And so I want to encourage us, as we think about ourselves, right, community is in our name. As we consider ourselves as Restoration Community Church, may we be a people that are moving closer to that ideal of community that Paul gives as an example to the Philippians. May we grow in love and humility both towards God and to one another. I want to invite you to join with me in prayer.
Lord, we thank you for your word that while it is not a manual for life, it does not um, prescribe everything that we ought to be doing, but even in that description, we can glean from it ways that are good and pure and righteous. And so as we see this affection between Paul and the Philippians, I pray that for us as a community, that there would be deep, authentic affection, that we would enjoy the company of one another, that we would serve each other out of joy and humility. Help us to be a people that as we are being transformed by you, that we can continue to to work to transform not only this community within the walls of this church, but this community outside these walls that so desperately need to hear your name. May we be a people who are ambassadors to that kingdom that is here but not yet fully complete. In the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close in worship this morning. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest trap and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. Still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand in Christ alone. Took on flesh, fullness of God in boundless pain. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Precious blood 
life, no fear in death, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Amen. This is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to our final breath. Amen. Well, I am looking forward to these next couple of months to walk through this letter together to see what was true of the Philippians might be true of us today as well. But as you go from this place, receive this benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.